Hello, everybody, and welcome. This is Joe Karen uh, from Talk Clean to Me. Along with me is Chloe Holzinger. And Hello. Today, <laughs> and today we're sitting down with uh, Resonant Energy. And as you may be able to tell, it's been a little while since we've done this, but we're glad to be back. This is the first time we're recording um, since wrapping up season one and on to season two. Um, so if the guys from Resonant Energy could please introduce themselves to the audience. Thanks so much for having us on. My name is Isaac Baker. I'm one of the co-founders uh, and co-presidents of Resident Energy. And I am Ben Underwood. I am the other co-founder and other co-president of uh, Resident Energy. We share everything in life. <laughs> <laughs> Aww. So where I wanted to start is not even really with what Resident does. We'll get there. Uh, but my question is, where did the inspiration come? So what was the seed? Like, when did you have the idea? What was that like? Was it, a, was it a monumentous moment? Was it a small moment? And how did it germinate into what you guys are doing now? Ben and I both went, did our undergrads in Vermont, and we had both uh, been interested in energy systems coming out of our undergrad backgrounds, both very interested in uh, anaerobic digestion as mm -hmm. a technology. And we were like, food waste, making energy. You're in Vermont. You've got like more digesters than anywhere else in the country. <laughs> we met uh, in that context, and Ben was the real champion of that process being abroad in China, working on a commercial feasibility project in Kunming. That's right, yeah. So I was on a, I was on a Fulbright scholarship in China, and we got introduced by this guy, Alex. Um, and then so we, we started to Skype. So for the first six months that we knew each other, we were just Skyping back and forth um, with a convenient 12-hour time difference. Um, Isaac got called over to build uh, this community solar division for co-op power. They just call you up and say, hey, you're working on digesters, but could you do that for solar too? Like, Yeah, more or less. I mean, it was basically, <laughs> hey, you're trying to start this project development thing. That's great. We're here trying to make low-income community solar work. It's a more developed technology. The problem to solve is not technical. The problem to solve is social and financial. How mm -hmm. do we get people plugged into this, and how do we get money behind this to make it work for communities? And that, for us, was ultimately, I think, the main interest that got us into biogas to begin with was it's we have technologies that work, and the problem is that we need money to get it out in the world, and we need people to do very specific things to make these technologies work. And so um, when we got started at Co-op Power, they, had, they were a few years in. They're clean, consumer-owned clean energy cooperative based out of Western Massachusetts in Northampton area. Um, and they had, they had done energy efficiency. They had done workforce training. They had done a number of different parts of the Massachusetts energy scene. They had raised, I was, my first internship was crowdfunding $5 million for a biodiesel plant that's community owned and got built out there. Um, that's going online like this year. So that was a, it's a fun project to be a part of. Um, so they, you know, they had, they had a lot of interesting kind of community development projects around energy going on. And community solar was just taking off. This was probably like two or three years ago in Massachusetts. So like, you know, national grid caps hadn't all been hit and like things were, <laughs> things were <laughs> looking really exciting. Um, and the SREC program was still flying, you know, forward at that time. And so community solar is looking really hot and they brought us in to say, you know, come and let's solve these two problems. Um, and they had a site. So we, having very little experience in solar at that time, they brought us in and said, we've got three acres. It, we're 
halfway through an interconnection process with the utility. Uh, we want to make this low income accessible. We want to do all of these different things and we need people who are going to just like see this project through. Um, so we just got thrown into a 600 KW <laughs> ground mount system in Western Mass uh, as like day one of that process. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like coming coming right out of the gate there. The, the sort of advantages that we had were that we were unmarried or unattached. So no other um, draws on a time, obviously. No children. So 24-7, um, you guys had to just dedicate to making this happen. Yeah, I'd put that in the plus column. And then in the minus column, um, no real solar project development experience, <laughs> um, at, let, let alone at a... 600 kilowatts yeah which is like that's that's mm. big i mean we're, we're talking huge. a we're yeah. talking a what was it three million three million dollar project yeah um yeah so we're, we're kind of in the <laughs> in the driver's seat there it was me and isaac and, and, and then another guy uh, river was his name um and he had a dog dog was named bobo so it would be like me isaac river and bobo and i just remember these like ice cold february like nights uh, out and we were, we were working some of the time in like hatfield Western Massachusetts in the Pioneer Valley, um, and the, the wind's like howling outside, and, and we're like we're like trying to figure out what should be on the next call to the the contractor who's building it. Like uh, you know, like do we need to do trenching? And, yeah. um, so it was anyway. Neat, sort of to 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 sort of cut to the chase. It was a dark it was a dark time, uh, but but we learned a lot. The reason we were able to be somewhat successful and get to the point we're at now. Um, was because so many people wanted to see it happen. Um, so we just had like investors and advisors and just at every step of the way, people doing unreasonable things to help us move this all forward um, and teaching us that kind of throughout that whole process. Awesome. What did, was that process of actively choosing, I'm going to be unstable for a little bit here and we'll see how this works. <laughs> What was that process like for you two? <laughs> well, yeah, and to put like a finer point on it, it's like I'm, I'm going to go work to figure out how to structure tax equity investments and like tax equity financing, which if you haven't done your personal taxes is like orders of magnitude more complicated. <laughs> it's like, uh, you know, <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I, haven't, I haven't been on the bunny, bunny hill yet, but uh, put me on the top of the mountain and <laughs> let's see what happens. But to answer yeah. your question, I, I, think, um, I think both of us, if I had to guess, probably have a proclivity for, uh, well, I'd say more of a tolerance for risk than would be the norm. And, you know, there's something to me like very exciting and appealing about just kind of throwing myself into the middle of uh, like a city where I don't speak the language very well. I don't really know what's going on. And, but I do have this idea that people are very excited about. And that was the case when I talked with them about biogas um, and, and, you know, figuring out a way to turn waste into energy, like pretty clear um, uh, value proposition there, and, and people would get excited about it. So I think some combination of having that really exciting idea and then applying it in a new way or with a completely new group of people in a new city is something that I've, um, that has been continually interesting to me. Cool. Well, I mean, it's clear from the way you're talking about it. You're getting me excited just talking about it, which I dig. <laughs> It's very cool. So I just want to um, figure out the, the timeline a little bit. So you guys were working on biogas projects, and then you got this, what was it, 600 kilowatt um, project. Was that the formation of resonant energy there? Was that, or were you guys not resonant energy at that point? Yeah, so the timing is uh, we started off we with this anaerobic digester project for about six months, quickly transitioned to co-op power. So we got hired in-house at co-op power. 
um, into their new community solar division there. Um, so, you know, intrapreneurship or what have you. So they had been around for 10 years, but this was like a, you know, come, come build it. You've got resources here. But after about nine months, our uh, salaries had been riding on a successful 600 kilowatt project getting built at some point, which would have been really exciting. Um, and, uh, well, and and I remember too. It's like <laughs> Isaac. Yeah. How Isaac got me into that job. Part of it was like he. I remember being on the phone with him, and he like, he. I think we're on like a spreadsheet, and he like goes over to it and and like hovers the mouse over one part of it, and it's like one hundred eighty thousand dollars. And he's like, if we build all these projects, like that's how much you're gonna make. <laughs> and, you know, in this year. And, and then over that nine month period. That number, which is like, you know, the development fee in the project is what's the, what the margin is after you take out the cost of developing, cost of building, cost of engineering, and so forth. And I remember that number was just getting smaller and smaller. <laughs> and until, until by the end of the nine months, it was like, well, you know, it'd be good to build it just because we put this much work into it. <laughs> there's, not, there's not any money left in it. <laughs> well, and then when the money truly disappeared is when we learned about the utility interconnection process and Eversource came back with an $800,000 interconnection for a $2 million project um, in Western Massachusetts, which is just a a nail in the coffin. Right, so they but, came to that fee. They were said, You're, we're only going to hook you up to the grid if you pay us $800,000. If you, like, all but rebuild the substation. <laughs> and right. Okay, yeah. so that you would have had to rebuild the substation for that amount. Yeah. Interesting. And, yeah. But I think, I think an important part of that is also, like, sort of parallel to that large-scale project development process, um, I was, because we were based in Boston, and so I had started conversations with some co-op power members who were part of Second Church in Dorchester, mm -hmm. which uh, um, is right down in Cotton Square, big white church um, with, it turns out, a perfect roof for solar. And for like five years, uh, a guy who is, was at the time actually was a member of the board or the chairman of the board of co-op power, Alphonse Knight, um, an electrician, works with robotics. He makes, I think, machines that make other machines or something like that. Um, it's hard to know. Creepy Skynet. Yeah. So he, he's he's making the Skynet, uh, you know, in Northern City, and, and he wanted to be able to get solar. I think for, they make semiconductors. I don't think it's that crazy. I think, anyway. I think it's like they make the machines that make the semiconductors. That's right. Yeah. That's A little right. less Skynet. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, and this guy, he had been trying for five years. By the time I came onto the scene, we came onto the scene, um, to get solar for his house and for his church. Um, church has a perfect roof for it, house had a perfect roof for it, and hadn't been able to do it. And here's a guy with like, smart guy and, and you know good community resources at his disposal. But um, we started to talk with them and started to talk with a pastor of, of Second Church about how we could possibly do that. And that got started, um, I guess it would be February of 2016 was when we started talking with that church and a number of other churches, um, the pastor of Second Church had the idea of if, if it's hard to do it for just our church. Um, we happen to have this list of like 500 other churches in, in Boston. Um, why don't you talk with them too and see what can happen? So we started that interfaith community solar project um, around the same time. Okay. And, and that turned out to be a really important, um, that's actually a really important part of the story of how we ended up um, creating a separate company. And I think some of the thesis um, in resident energy um, as well as came out of the distinction between large scale development as opposed to smaller scale, more, mm -hmm. more, uh, I see. you could say modular development. Yep. In one sentence, can you describe what your company does? 
Uh, Resident Energy is a community-based project development company, and we make it possible to bring a uh, no-money-down solar financing option to uh, low-income communities and moderate-income communities, um, and essentially uh, all the uh, solar customers who haven't been able to participate in the market yet. How do you make money? Yeah, well, I mean, really, really uh, looking forward to the um, to the, uh, the the honorarium for being on this podcast is actually that's about fifty percent of our revenue for for this quarter. So. <laughs> uh oh. <laughs> so, thank thank you guys. <laughs> we, so we get that question a lot, as you might imagine. Um, we, we think of ourselves as community-based developers. Um, so as a developer, and we work a lot with like folks in affordable housing, a lot with folks in kind of building and real estate, generally speaking. And so our business model is that of a developer. It's the similar piece where like our, our role is to find a place to put solar, to find money to put it up, and to find a contractor to build it. And then we take 10 to 15% of that upfront cost. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's our our income that comes from the project as they go up. We facilitate the project getting built. We transfer it into long-term ownership with one of our financing partners, Mm -hmm. and they pay us for having created that whole web of contracts that facilitated it. How do you get financing partners? That's been a, um, that's been, it's been a bottleneck and not just for us, I think for, um, in particular, there's been even some other companies based here in Boston who, ultimately weren't able to succeed because they couldn't find the financing for it. Um, we've been lucky enough to be able to partner with a firm, another local firm based here in Somerville called Sunwealth. They used to be called PSM. Um, so it's uh, mainly been John Abe with Sunwealth, who we've been working with. And he um, he created a way, so the tax equity is a big part of solar financing, um, kind of hard equity to find because it requires a very specific kind of uh, as we say, tax appetite, um, which is another way of you know just saying you have to have a very specific kind of income. You have to have passive income. It's hard to find people who both have that kind of income and want to invest in solar projects because normally the intersection of that Venn diagram is a pretty thin sliver. Um, and what, yeah. And this is like not just a casual amount of income. We're talking about like you are rolling off massive profits from some activity, meaning at the smaller local scale, you're like, an insurance company or like a real estate developer of some kind who owns a lot of properties that are rolling off income or at these national fund levels, you are JP Morgan, Google, Amazon, one of the larger equity investors in solar. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And so and so basically, um, just just briefly to talk about SunWealth, because I think they have an interesting model, is that they, they looked at the sort of transaction costs, which you could say are the cost of getting someone who has $100,000 of income for rental properties a year and getting them to a point where they're ready to put some of that money into a solar project or into mm-hmm. some LLC to build a solar project. Um, we kind of put that under the heading of transaction costs, which, as you might imagine, between the accountants and the lawyers is pretty high. Right. Um, and so SunWealth built um, what, you know, of course, they call a platform, which <laughs> plenty plenty of interpretations of what that could mean, but SunWealth has a platform. It's on the internet. They, it's on the internet. <laughs> the internet. Um, and they get these accredited investors onto that. They combine it with loans to provide the debt to the projects, yep. and then they have a pretty efficient way of uh, and I'm sure that John would say a very efficient way of getting getting capital um, into these uh, into these solar projects. Um, and, and I just you know, and kind of a shout out to to John or to anyone who knows Sunwell or thinks about solar financing has been that he's really been willing to 
go into the trenches with us with these projects and to um, based on the social benefit of the projects um, and based on this incremental impact building projects that wouldn't have been possible otherwise really go into the nuts and bolts open up the hood and and finance in a way that a lot of other others wouldn't uh, so that's that's how we've been able to get this far cool so I have a question about have you guys had any major disagreements so far about the direction of the company and what you're doing and how do you guys handle disagreements like that um, you know as, as friends and as partners I remember. I think there's like a good <laughs> that's a nice, good sigh. I hope I hope we caught that. <laughs> like uh, I don't know. I, I would share. I would share an anecdote or a story. I guess that I think captures it pretty well. And then you can tell me if if it um, if it uh, if it's fair. If it's a fair representation of why you were wrong. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Is that the title of the story? Why you were wrong. <laughs> oh. um, I, some of the the biggest questions that we faced were, you know, especially working on a hundred percent commission. We had not a lot of great options getting started, just because like we were, um, and particularly because of the mission orientation and what we came to it with. Where I had decided early on, coming out of school, that I both needed to be doing something that was going to address climate, um, but that if it wasn't kind of part of addressing social inequality as well, it wasn't interesting to me. So like, you know, the digesters were like kind of just getting in. It was really a pretty pure climate focused goal of just like doing something good for the earth. Um, but then getting into co-op power was really a big learning process of like they had a lot of low and moderate income members that we got to work with directly here in Boston and start thinking about energy affordability and energy access as like a central thesis to our work. Um, so what I would say is uh, what we learned through that process and what the iterative disagreement has been has has been about like how best to achieve that goal. That's right. And it is a, uh, a disagreement that happens not just internally, but with everyone else in our space, which is like fundamentally like should we be building massive farms out in fields and like bulldozing over state policy to try and get that energy value into cities in ways that the utilities don't want it to happen mm -hmm. or um, and then rebuilding the grid to like allow us to build all of that solar out in rural areas or should we be doing really challenging, like really difficult solar integration onto buildings in urban environments where you have like everything stacked against you in terms of like old building stock, like electrical infrastructure that is, you know, never on your side, long utility processes like across the board. Um, and you have non-credit worthy uh, building owners in the form of nonprofits and low income households and everything else. So right. it's like neither, both had like very, very large challenges to yeah. solve. And then we also, you throw in state policy. Right. So that's the kind of ping pong that has been happening for the last three years, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, through all of that, I think like, like what, what has emerged has been like, like Isaac said, that the shared principles of, we really want to have a scalable way of doing a lot for climate while also bringing new people and people voices that have traditionally been marginalized into the fray of helping to stop climate change. Um, and I think for a while there were, there were questions of like, is that, um, you know, are you trying to solve two different things? Um, and would trying to solve one make it harder to solve the other? Um, and I think what's emerged maybe in a really emphatic and clear way just over the past couple of months has been that uh, I think that now the only way to 
really address climate change is by bringing in those marginalized voices um, and, and by effectively maybe doubling or tripling the number of people who care about the climate and who benefit from solving the climate problem. Um, that's what scale in addressing climate change should look like and what it can look like. And, and I think that's where, through all those disagreements, that unifying principle has been what's um, What's kept it all together, I think, that, that and the fact that Isaac's just a really nice guy. I think that was very succinctly put. Um, mm -hmm. and I like that idea of bringing more voices to the conversation can help tip the scales, right? Um, right. And, right. And, but what was interesting to us was always like the people side of things. And I, I went to Middlebury for my undergrad and was involved with like divestment and a lot of activism-based work. And mm -hmm. that, I think, has informed a lot of our approach as well, which has been not just that we're going to build projects and bring new voices to the table, but also that we're going to think about how that impacts policies and other levers of power um, in our clean energy space broadly. So like when we built our first three solar projects, they were three really, really um, visible solar projects that were a part of pushing for new policies here in the city and like getting legislators and policymakers involved. And so I think for us, um, that's one of the many, like there are so many benefits to bringing new voices to the table, but the other is that you take an issue that utilities have for years been saying, like we serve low income people, solar is just for those who have houses in Nantucket. Um, and they win at the state house all the time because of that. Um, and so changing the narrative about who solar is for, who clean energy is for, just waters down that whole argument and I think is a big part of paving a way forward for clean energy more broadly. So this, so scaling your organization, right? Um, so you guys are still, you know, being scrappy, you're early on. So looking ahead, and I'm sure you, as you're going after capital all the time, like how do you scale this organization is a really big question, right? Because you're working really, really hard to get any success that you're getting now, and you don't want to keep working that hard to get proportionally the same amount of success, right? You want to, you know, so how, do, how, how does that happen? How does your company grow? So, um, as you said, doing things more, faster, and easier. Um, brand is such a huge part of a retail customer-facing company like what we are. Um, so that's been huge. Um, a lot of the work that we've done has been in building a, um, a predictive algorithm. So it's a set of public and private data sets that help us find which buildings are the best buildings um, in any urban area to put solar on. So that has to do with roof age, uh, the orientation, the sun access, um, ownership. So is it owner occupied or not? Taking all of that and then putting that information in the hands of the community partners who we work with um, so that we could give a nonprofit who has um, a lot of staff who might have the ability to do some door knocking and mm. be compensated for it. That doesn't work too well unless you have a way of really targeting um, and ensuring that that's going to be an effort that finds the right kind of roofs, right. um, which I think on a sort of global level is like maybe 20% of the roofs actually could even have solar panels on them. So mm -hmm. we, we empower the community partners with that. And then we're also working to build our own teams of people who live in the communities that we work with. And one, I think one good example is like we've done a lot of, we've hired staff and we've done a lot of kind of bringing folks in-house on the outreach side to do customer acquisition here in the city. Um, and we've got projects going up in New York City and Long Island and in Western Massachusetts, all as a result of partnerships with local groups on the ground. Interesting. And so a lot of just 
as with our partners who are doing finance, a lot of the work is figuring out how do we democratize access, let people know how solar finance works, get more in local investors involved in this. Um, what we're doing is democratizing the other side of solar, which is to say that you know this doesn't need to just be done by national uh, solar companies like Vivint, Sunrun, um, hmm. and now Tesla, right? Um, but. <laughs> Uh, but that there's different parts of the workflow that we can carve up and we can engage local stakeholders. In an ideal world, would you be a national organization or would you want to still stay, like, become the dominant player in the Northeast in an ideal world? We definitely want to do a sort of principled growth towards becoming national. Um, I think that a lot of the time there's a focus on uh, becoming national like overnight, and that's really not our model. Um, I think you know what, what, I, what I hope we can make clear here is that part of how we get, um, part of what makes it possible for our model to scale is that we have a really low cost of customer acquisition. And, and the way that we've done that is through what Isaac was talking about, through these partnerships, through bringing local people onto our staff, um, and through this, this, these data sets. Um, and I think that inherently involves building trusted relationships with each um, community that we go into. That doesn't mean we spend years talking with people beforehand, but just that we uh, really give people an opportunity to co-develop these programs with us. Um, or I think the, the other word that people use for it is like participatory planning. Um, so that's a longer process. But I would envision, I think in, in 10 years, we would really want um, the community outreach model that we're using in the financing to be available to everybody in the United States. Cool. So you mentioned your uh, solar access program. What is the solar access program you guys have, and how does that contrast with the tr traditional model, financing models for solar? Yeah, so uh, traditional financing models for solar has been the power purchase agreement, mm -hmm. um, which is no money down, you lease your rooftop out, you buy the power that it produces at a fixed electricity rate. Say you're paying 18 cents a kilowatt hour, you sign at 13 cents a kilowatt hour with a 2.9% escalator. And that is what every solar provider out there like Vivint, Sunrun, all the major players are offering. Um, so that requires a 680 credit score. In some cases we've seen 640. Um, so right there, that then incentivizes solar companies that are strategizing about the market of where are we gonna go deploy our folks, do outreach, knock doors, put solar up. They're gonna focus in concentrated high credit score neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. Credit score has correlation with income in a lot of cases though. And so what we wanted to figure out is how do we get around that 680 credit score? One of the churches that our offices are now in actually is this beautiful old church. It's got six different uh, congregations that all share the space <laughs> to try and keep the lights on there. Um, naturally, if you're a standard solar investor and you're deciding like, do I want to take a 20 year bet on this church paying me for electricity? The answer is no across the board. Um, and so, in order to address that, we had to, we still offered them a power purchase agreement, but worked with local impact investors who said, we're willing to underwrite that risk because we want to see solar here in Dorchester. Um, but that was a long 18 month process to make happen. And so we said, if we're going to do this again, we can't have that credit score and you know risk of cost recovery be a part of scaling this model. We've got it set up so that if you're a homeowner, you just put the panels on your roof. Um, we give you some of the output from the solar array, you don't get any new bill, um, no new, uh, no, no, I mean, you just get the value of the power. And then we sell the rest of the power 
to uh, to a third party um, off taker. Um, so that's like a local nonprofit. It could be a college, university, municipality, um, and so the sort of bottom line of it is that you know you can now what we have is PBA. You can choose to take on that additional bill, or to work under our model and just get the value of the power with no additional bill, um, and really get the same or slightly higher savings under our model. The the standard power purchase agreement is let's say you're paying a hundred dollars a month for electricity. Yep. Someone. You get solar on your roof, right? You get $100 a month worth of electricity and you pay $85 each month, right? right? So your net savings are $15. Our goal was to split up those two things. So we said, we're going to put a standalone meter in your building. We're going to send you that $15 worth of electricity value and you'll pay nothing for it. And the rest, we're going to aggregate and sell to an anchor user who's going to provide that other $85 uh, iteratively for the next 20 years um, for all of our buildings. Yeah. Yeah. So the power purchase agreement is like, I would say, like an artifact of mostly going behind the meter. That was originally how all this happened. Um, you know, it was putting it behind the meter of larger users. But now that we don't have to do that, it's just way simpler. So what would you tell aspiring entrepreneurs? Um, who are similarly mission focused, but don't know how to make that a reality. Um, what advice would you give? Hmm. Um. I, there's a couple answers. I mean, I think yeah. to, to any entrepreneur, the, the kind of blanket advice is that it will take a thousand percent more time and effort than you think it will and that money will be slower to come and that expenses will be larger than you think and that you know so the standard startup advice always applies um and i think incorporating the mission orientation um for for us the most important thing has been doing that in a way that feels authentic which is about having relationships on the ground with communities and in the startup language you know that's like you've got to know your customer um, and i think a big part of kind of overcoming that um, or making that mission a reality is doing that in a really authentic way where you take the time to get to know uh, the customer base or the communities that you're going to be working with and serving and i think that has been for us, that's paid huge dividends all the way down the road. To fulfill a mission orientation, you have to get to know them. And to like, for us, our, one of the biggest things we did was we were working downtown. We were at a WeWork. We were all kind of crowded around one of these tables with brightly colored couches and beer starting at like whenever, you know, and like this <laughs> whole kind of startup scene. And we made the choice really early on to locate out of that and to go put our offices in one of the churches we had been serving. Mm -hmm. So our whole company does a whole lot of extra commuting to go and work in Codman Square in Dorchester. Except for me, which is nice. <laughs> That's right. Ben's very close. <laughs> Remember why you started doing this. Remember what kind of problem, What what is the problem that you're trying to solve? Um, and I think that like, the co-working space example is this really great, um, uh, you know, kind of way of, of getting at this. There's a lot of window dressing to being an entrepreneur. And some of that's like the kind of glamorous and flashy side of it that, you know, we start drinking at four and, and <laughs> we have beer in our office and we have beanbag chairs. And, um, you know, and <laughs> I've talked. glamorous side. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. And I'm, you know, right, you're, talking with, you're talking with investors and there's a lot of like bravado and, and, and that goes into that, you know, kind of chest puffing and, and, and all that stuff. Um, and, and then on the darker side, it's like sometimes it's like a real grind and, and it's going to be harder and all the things that he said. Um, it takes longer. And, um, 
but uh, but it should be for a problem that matters, and it should be a problem that matters not just to the world, but that matters to you. So mm-hmm. I think at any point where you feel confused, just just re-ask that question: What is the problem, and, and why is uh, why is that an important problem? Cool. And we're all, you know, this really, really mission focused company. We're like bringing new folks in every day who are just there, not even because the pay is there, or like anything is really there, but because this is the work they want to be doing with their lives. And that's the kind of company we've been able to build that's created this culture that's very resilient to like all of the ups and downs of the solar coaster and everything else, right? <laughs> thank you both for, yeah, for thank you guys. coming out on a Sunday morning um, and talking with us here at we go wise. Yes, we are. Um, at we go wise. I'll have to check whether they want their name in the podcast or not. I yes. assume it's fine. <laughs> well, thank you to, to both of you. And thank you to we go wise for, for allowing us to host here. Mm-hmm. Um, in the show notes, you will find more on resonant energy. Um, and if you'd like to support the show, please tell a friend, tweet at us, uh, or subscribe to us on Apple iTunes. Um, or or SoundCloud, um, and listening in the in the future, or really just listening. Anybody who's listening, please give us a review. Mm-hmm. <laughs> five star helps. We need those five stars. We didn't get many last season. I'm a little jaded about this. I don't even know if I want to give them another challenge. You know, it's uh, nobody nobody took us up on any single challenge, which I'm a little grateful for. <laughs> <laughs> there are a few I didn't want to do there. All right. Well, bottom line is, if you know any of the five star challenges we gave you last time, um, you can p- take take your pick of one of them. Prove me wrong that it was actually a good idea to do that. And um, whether it's something we'll throw in a blender and drink, whether it's uh, sweet dance moves you want us to do, I think you can go take your pick. There was pick. probably a yoga one in there. Yoga. Too. Yep. Most uh, whatever yoga move, da- however dangerous you want me to try. <laughs> um, I will do that in exchange for five stars and I'm not kidding. So feel free to take me up on that. <laughs> and for suggestions, please get in touch. Uh, visit talkcleanpodcast.com. Uh, tweet at us. We are at talkcleanpodcast um, or email contact at talkcleanpodcast.com. Cool. All right. Thanks again, guys. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. No, I mean, not to throw any shade on Tinder for Dogs, though, because that's, that's, you know, it's been, I know it's been hard for a long time, but, but, but we think that, uh, that the clean energy thing is a little more exciting. That's cool. I love it. Hey, guys, this is Joe just jumping in. We're trying something a little bit different in this episode. You might see it pop up in other episodes. It's just a little bit of Chloe and I chatting after the fact um, to share our thoughts. So we hope you enjoy. So what do you think? For me, um, I think it's no surprise that mission is a big part for me. And I like most what they had to say about um, being a mission-driven company, giving them the resiliency to ride the the solar coaster, as they put it. In my personal experience working for a startup with, you know, many oh-shit moments and many highs and many lows – not only does being mission focused get you a lot of talent you wouldn't get otherwise, right, for what you're able to pay, but it also 
makes you closer, makes you a better team, helps you keep that talent. Um, and so I think, you know, a, the, one of the biggest things that these guys have going for them is they have a mission that really resonates with people um, and probably have a really strong team built around that core mission. So that's what really struck me. And to me, I think the most interesting part that we talked about was there. Um, ben talked about scaling and as a, as a bit of a nerd, their ability to scale the technology and knowing that a staff driven system doesn't really work. And so they're working on either developing IP or trade secrets or just that predictive algorithm um, will be super important for them moving forward. Yeah, I think they have a lot of moving parts, which makes them really interesting. For one, you know, trying to revolutionize the, the PPA model is pretty drastic, right? Everybody does it for a reason. It's tried and true. So they're trying and fundamentally, as far as I can tell, new approach to how to, how to finance these projects. So, and the, beyond that, you know, they're a part of their approach is keeping the cost of customer acquisition low, which is a very important part of scaling, right? You're not going to scale if for every customer you acquire, you need the same amount of cost, right? Whether it's your time, whether it's your marketing. So building their brand, leveraging community members, um, and being novel, the way that all comes together, I think is a really um, interesting package. And you tie uh, the bow on top, which is this mission. Um, I think it's really cool uh, what they're doing. I really, uh, I really like it a lot.